But there are some scriptures that we need to adjust, I mean to address, and uh, words of God that need to continue beyond what was just sung. Uh, that is very much a part of the message, but there is more to consider. We'll begin again in Leviticus 23, where we've gone through the holy days as they've started, to see God's command. And here we are, gathered today, on a very important day and season and time and festival that goes on for more than one day. He says in verse 34, Speak to the children of Israel. Here you are. So, this is spoken to you. You are children of Israel. You're not all of them, but uh, a start in the right direction of spiritual Israel. The fifteenth day of the seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days unto the Eternal. There are very, very few people on earth today out of seven and a half billion who are keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. And many of those who are, in fact, most of those who are, are keeping it in the wrong on the wrong day and probably in the wrong place because God is pretty narrow in what he instructs and allows. And we need to be sure that we are in line with what he says. So it's a Feast of Tabernacles that he has ordained. Tabernacles, we'll find in a bit, means booths or temporary dwellings. So the Feast of Tabernacles has to do with something, and its name certainly instigates it, with where we are to be here on this earth, and what mode we are to be in. Because where we sit today, in terms of world history, and what is going on on earth, is not permanent by any means. Now, to some, it might look fairly permanent, and yet, if you take another view of what's going on in our world today, it doesn't look too permanent, because there are wars here, there, and everywhere, and there are rumors of more wars even here in our own nation. Now, with this COVID virus, we saw some lockdown, we saw some restrictions, Illegal, unconstitutional, just the opinions of governors and mayors as to what we ought to do, but it wasn't law. And then it began to kind of ease up a little bit, but lately we've heard of rumors of it may be a greater lockdown and heavier than before. So there's trouble, it appears, ahead of us in a world going crazy. Uh, we have a just new war just started in the East, Azerbaijan and Turkey and Armenia are into it, and I understand a U.S. fighter was just shot down by the Turks, and that could spell big trouble in that region and possibly ultimately with Iran, where I think we will go eventually. So there's trouble coming, and you can see it even right in our area. As of last night, the governor of Utah has mandated that all businesses, all employees, and all customers shall wear masks henceforth. So if you go to Hurricane or St. George, 
you're required by the governor's mandate to do that. They're already carrying signs around with employees in Costco, apparently, and they'll if you don't have a mask on, they'll hold it in your face telling you to wear a mask. I haven't seen it, but I heard about it. So it's going to get more onerous day by day and week by week because the globalists will not let up this time. This time it's business, for business. This is it. California is already doing that, and you'll see more and more of it. And at the same time, last night, our president announced that he and his wife both have the virus, and he is going into quarantine, has gone into quarantine for apparently, I guess, 14 days. He's canceled all his uh, appointments and is disappearing. Now, you might remember about three, four weeks ago, however long it's been, he said, I may disappear for a while. You may not see me. I may be gone for a while. And he didn't elaborate. He didn't say why. He just said it may happen. And it sounded like not may happen, but it's going to happen, kind of the way he phrased it. And then here he was (laughs) for several more weeks. And now suddenly, as of last night, he's disappeared. Where is he? Who knows? Is there a coup going on? Well, there's several planning it. Is this it? I don't know. Uh, Is he afraid of something and he's disappeared? Why couldn't he wear a mask and... Still keep some appointments from a distance. You know, there are a lot of questions that could come up. But why has he just disappeared now for at least a couple of weeks, just before the election and before the next debate? And the country is in turmoil over this election, and who's going to win, and can anybody, and is there going to be chicanery? And I think that goes without question. They're already catching Democratic mail carriers uh, ditching mail-in votes from Republican areas, throwing the mail away so it never gets in. All kinds of stuff's going on in our country today. And we are here watching it. And it's getting worse and worse week by week. Let's go on here for a little bit in what God has to say about the Feast of Tabernacles. On the first day... That's this day to the best I can possibly figure, even though the Jews are keeping it later, and uh, most of the Church of God is keeping it at a different time, some earlier, some later, a few may be on the same day, but not very many. We may be about the only ones that are keeping it on the correct day. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein, not your daily activities. A holy meeting, commanded meeting. So, if God commands that we be here, this must be pretty important. He doesn't do that on many days through the year, does He? Say, we're having a meeting and you be there. No, you don't see that many of the 365. You see it only at the holy days and the weekly Sabbath. Oh, and there's another change 
Well, we've had Sunday before, but now the Pope and who all else was it, several important people, quote-unquote, have just announced that we need to start keeping green Sunday. Uh, set Sunday aside with no work, no business, uh, as a green Sabbath for Mother Gaia. Gaia? Gaia? Gay sounds right. Uh, they're going to reinstitute Sunday. Now, I can remember in the 50s and 60s when they had the blue laws, they couldn't sell alcohol on Sunday, and uh, there are a lot of things that couldn't be done on Sunday. Most businesses were closed on Sunday, and that's changed over the last 50 years, and now most everything is open on Sunday. But they're going back the other direction, and it does appear that part of the mark of the beast is Sunday worship, Satan's day, as opposed to God's holy seventh-day Sabbath. So there is a movement going now by some of the leaders of this world to get us back. And they're not saying to worship God, they're saying to worship Earth, Mother Earth. Ultimately Satan, who is the ruler of this Earth at this present time. So this is a convocation called by God. Seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire unto the eternal... On the eighth day shall be a holy convocation again, commanded assembly, to you, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the eternal. It is a solemn assembly, and you shall do no servile work therein. So he calls it a seven-day festival, and then he tacks on a day, the eighth day, which is, has been an adopted part of his plan and purpose. His overall plan and purpose is accomplished in 7,000 years, represented by the seven-day week. Each day is a 1,000 years, Numbers 14.34 and 2 Peter 3.8. And God is not slack concerning that. It will be 7,000 years. And yet we have a lot of people who lived during that 7,000 years who have not had an opportunity at salvation. Miscarriages, aborted babies, uh, people who died young, people who never heard of, even if they lived a thousand years nearly, or knew or understood the true plan of God and had an opportunity at salvation. So they are a backlog, if you will, <laughs> uh, a sewer drain full, if you will, of people who have not turned to God. And that eighth day represents those. We'll get to it, of course, on the eighth day more. But they also have to have, belatedly, an opportunity at what those in the first seven the thousand years ultimately achieved, being part of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not finished at all at the end of 7,000 years. Most people who will be in the kingdom of God will be inductees after the 7,000 years are over. They'll be grafted in to spiritual and kingdom Israel, to coin a term, uh, that will then exist. So that day is sort of tacked onto the seven days 
as something important to come for some people who have not had an opportunity as yet. So that's why he talks about eight days here, and I'll mention it again as we go on. And then he summarizes what's come from verse 1 down till now. These are the feasts of the eternal, all seven, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, to offer an offering made by fire unto the eternal, a burnt offering and a meal offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, everything upon his day. Now that's why he tells us that we are to come to these days in another passage and not come empty, but that we are to consider the blessings that have come from God and that we are to bring an offering before him to reflect our heart. I don't mention money very often in this congregation. Uh, I want it to be different than it was in worldwide where we got beg to give more and then to reach in our pockets give even more and so on and so forth because it was a lot about numbers and a lot about money. And here, before God, I tell you, this is not about numbers and it is not about money. We had much bigger numbers before. Nelson just mentioned that the first feast we had here in 2000, uh, there were more people. There were 70, and then the next year, 120, and then 150. But we kept learning things. And as we learned things, we instituted them, and then we had less people because they weren't ready to accept a proper Passover on the first day of Passover because they weren't willing to accept some of the things that we came, the calendar. Uh, they weren't willing to accept certain things that God has been teaching us, so they went their way. Or they had other human problems, and some have died. We've got quite a few of those that died. So we're much smaller now. You know what? I could care less. I really could care less. We're here to obey God in the very best way we can and serve Him. And if following his doctrine and his instructions causes fewer to come, or my faults or your faults cause fewer to come, that's okay. We're all here because we need to overcome and grow and be part of the kingdom of God. None of us is perfect, and we still probably don't have perfect understanding about everything even yet. But as we learn... We will do it. And if some have trouble swallowing that, they won't be here among us. They'll be off somewhere keeping the Feast of Tabernacles by themselves. An unauthorized Feast of Tabernacles by themselves. Because they're doing it all over the world. One people, three people, ten people, twenty people. Unauthorized by God. Not in God's place. Not in God's time. And not according to God's doctrines. And it varies from place to place. We got to get it right. And I don't mention money much because that's not my factor anyway. You all know I've made millions off this little place at $100 an acre of lease. And I've got a lawsuit against me right now for unjust enrichment. Yeah, we had like. Twenty-four, twenty-five hundred a month there for a while coming in on leases. 
and uh, over 2,000 of that, that's four-fifths of it, went to the mortgage alone. And I made millions off that other $500 because we didn't build any roads or put any pumps and wells and on and on and on it goes. But we don't mention money much because that's basically between you and God. I'll teach what he says about tithing. Tithing is a salvational issue. God will have his tenth. That's all there is to it. Because the tenth represents a tenth of Israel who will be saved out of what is now beginning to happen in the world to start the millennium. And he is going to bring a tenth of those who were called into worldwide to build a temple and to finish his work. So, numerically, he will have his tenth. And that is one of the symbols that we have to live by and through in order to have God's blessing. Because he decreed it back here in several different scriptures. And he didn't go into all the meaning of it when he decreed it. He just said, do it. And since then, we have seen other scriptures which have said why we do it. And Malachi shows that. There's an end-time prophecy. He says, you've robbed me. And people say, how have we robbed you? Tithes and offerings. Now, Worldwide Church of God, some years ago, after Herbert Armstrong died, said, ah, you don't have to tithe anymore. That's done away with. from the Tkach bunch. And then the income dropped dramatically. And all of a sudden, Joe got a message from the Lord that, well, indeed, we do need to still keep tithe. It wasn't done away with after all. you got to do it. Because he was worried about numbers and money. And worldwide, in its history, to one degree or another, also had that problem, numbers and money. And some of the so-called leading evangelists pushed that. And we got letters from Herbert Armstrong, co-worker letters, and all the time they were asking for more money, more money. That bothered me. I, I just couldn't see that. And then you may remember, some of you, that there came a letter out from Pasadena saying you need to put borrow all the money you can on your credit cards, sell your houses, do everything because we're at the final push of the work and we need all the money we can get in order to finish the work. And I read that and I thought, that's not right. There's something wrong with that. And I didn't take that letter, as I did most letters that came from Pasadena with a directive, and present it to the local congregations in South Florida. I put it at the back of my desk. And I left it there. And sometime later, after people had begun to... Because they got it in a letter themselves, personal letter. I just never addressed it. And some of them began to do some of those things and to go in debt in order to... for the final push. Wrong. Here we are. Let's see, that was probably back in 67 or 68. That's been over 50 years ago. 
and the final work is not done. So sometimes we get ahead of ourselves. Sometimes we're presumptuous. Sometimes we think we know when we don't know, and we didn't know. And we need to be careful. But if you go back to what God said, he said, you're to tithe. And he says, that's how you've robbed me, in tithes and in offerings, in Malachi, which is an end-time book. Malachi's setting is after Herbert Armstrong was called. Malachi's setting is basically after Herbert Armstrong died. It's about the very end time. When he gets on the ministry for feeding themselves and not the people, which to some degree was done in Worldwide. It's when he gets on those who followed Worldwide for doing the same thing and using for themselves everything that was left. The buildings in Pasadena, everything is gone now because of greed of men and disobedience by men. It's gone. Why? Because God would have his tithe. And he would have what is his. And he will have a tithe of his people. And the physical monetary tithe is only a type of and a symbol of what is more important, and that is his tithe of his people. Because it is them through whom he is going to work to finish his work and to in great part, establish his kingdom. Because a great number of the 144,000 firstfruits will come out of this end-time work. From worldwide and those who died there, faithful. And those who departed in sin and went and did their own thing, may some repent. And 10% of them will. Because God says, I'll have my tithe to come build my church, to build my temple, and to build Jerusalem, and to finish the work under the two witnesses who will go out and preach to the world. So God is going to have that. And then when he tells us to come to the feast, he told them to bring an offering to him. And I won't go to all the scriptures, but you know them. He says, when you come before him to worship, to bring with a cheerful heart. A cheerful heart. So he does not expect us to become perfunctory in this. We get into maybe some habits over the years where, well, a holy day offering to me, and I, I know these things from looking back 50, 60 years and seeing how people have done how people in local congregations have done, they figure that $25 or $50 or $100, and I'm thinking back into the 50s and 60s even, was how much they should bring. And it became an established habit pattern. Oh, it's a holy day. I'll write a check for $100. It's holy day. I'll write a check for $500. Uh, it's a holiday. I'll write a check for $10,000. There were people who did that, too. Because it, be, it had just sort of become habit. Now, I'm not demeaning anything anybody gave, whether it was a dollar or 10000 or whatever. It doesn't matter the amount. 
the widow gave her might into the treasury, and it's all she had. It wasn't much, but it was 100%. You can't give any more than that. And Christ, wow, was impressed with that. Now, I don't think we should all go out and give everything we have. I don't think we could do it in a cheerful heart. She apparently could. Because to her, she was in extreme poverty already. And one might didn't change her poverty level much. So it really didn't make that much difference to her in that sense, but it was all she had. And aren't we to give to God, as human beings, all we have? We're to offer our bodies, our minds, as a living sacrifice. So when we come here, we're to bring all we are. We're to bring all we have. We're to bring everything before God. And we'll see that here in a moment. So, you're not to be partly here. You're to be all here. You're not to be partly somewhere else. On a tropical island where you'd like to be, maybe, or whatever you might have dreamed about. You're not to be on a cruise ship trying to keep the feast of God on a cruise ship, as it became popular to do some years back. That is not where God said His name. I'll guarantee it. We're to be where God said His name, where He personally said His name, and no one and nowhere else. Because it's God's feast. It's not your feast. It's God's feast. And He is very, very particular about it. There are people who are trying to keep the feast in their own way, wherever they might be, alone or with someone, and that is not approved by God. Guaranteed. We need to be where it is approved by God. Now, I, I don't want to leave that thought. He said, God loves a cheerful giver. And instead of becoming creatures of habit, when it comes to God's holy days, we should take time out and assess how much we have been blessed leading up to that holy day or that period of time. We should think about that. Put some time and even prayer into it. So that when we bring something before God, it's not perfunctory. It's not, if I might use the term, lukewarm. It is not Laodicean. It is not just performing something because, oh, I should do this. And therefore, there's no emotion. There's no feeling behind the check or the cash or whatever you turn in. They turned in animals back then as offerings to God or produce. They'd herd them to Jerusalem and turn them in as an offering, as well as sometimes their tithe, I'm sure. But God said, think about it. I want you to be coming to worship me. That's the point of this whole thing, is to come here to worship God. And that should not be a sterile environment. It should be an environment with much emotion. 
It should be an environment with much love for God, with much love for His people, with much love for His purpose in turning us into spirit beings ultimately. So when we come to the feast, it is to rehearse a part of His plan, a part of His purpose, a part of His everything. And therefore, we should not come saying, oh, well, I guess it's time to keep the feast. It should be with anticipation. It should be with feeling and emotion. We should have had some of that during special music at the beginning here. When Christ is ruling on this earth, these will be the conditions. This will be a wonderful time. You don't know, a couple tears came to my eyes. Maybe I'm over-emotional. I don't know. Some people think I'm hard-hearted, but no, I'm softy inside. And tears came to my eyes. And I thought, what can I say after this? I mean, I said that at the beginning, but that's the way I felt. Because we're here for a very, very important reason, and we don't want to diminish that in any way. And that is why God says to consider an offering. See, a tithe is a mandated portion of our income that he commands us to do. An offering (coughs) is totally different in that it comes from the heart. One comes from a command. One comes from the heart. So we need to prepare our heart before those offerings are ever made, whether it be Passover, Pentecost, Atonement, Feast of Tabernacles, whatever. We need to think about it. And he says to give according to how God has blessed us. Now, if you, lukewarm, write a check out of habit, because that's, in your mind, what it ought to be whatever that number might be. You haven't gone through the process that God wants you to use, where you are coming before Him, asking for His blessing, keeping His holy days that have great meaning in your life, and you don't approach it, eh, ho-hum, time to do this. Okay, it's time to sing 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 a hymn. It's time to have a potluck. It's time to give a offering. It's time to, whatever, okay, go with the flow, let's just do it. No, he wants us here with deep feeling for him, with deep emotion, and he wants us to bring whatever we can cheerfully bring. We don't have to make it hurt, because God doesn't want us to bring an offering that would make us hurt. It isn't about hurting. It is about coming with joy in our heart that we can present something to God. What do we have to give to God? Not much. We are nothing. Every one of us. We are nothing. We don't really have anything to give to God. But he tells us to give our heart to him. Seek me with all your heart there, Jeremiah, and other places and I will bless you. So, when we come to worship God, the Lord of hosts, we need to come 
prepared to do it with our hearts. And that's why we prepare an offering with our heart. I've assessed what God has done in this past month, three months, six months, year. And I've been blessed. Overall, And I've, I've got to say I've been blessed. If we're obeying God in some ways, we're being blessed. Now, everything may not have gone our way, and when we have trials, troubles, tribulations, that's always there. But can we, can we say we've been cursed? I don't think so. I haven't seen any COVID here. Maybe we'll get some. I don't know. It's a minor thing. It's not a big deal yet. But God does promise us protection from the horrible things that are coming. I don't consider COVID-19 that horrible by any means. But it is a start. And wearing masks is a start toward total subjection of slavery. You will do this. And it will get worse. But no, we're blessed here. And we, we're able to travel here. We're able to be before God at His Feast of Tabernacles. So, that is the kind of feeling when He says, Bring these offerings made by fire to Me. He wants us to be able to assess our blessings and make that offering commensurate to that of what our heart can do. And don't take it past that where you begrudge it or hate it or whatever. Now, if you begrudge it or hate it in the first place, you may not have the right attitude to start with. But, you, but, but God doesn't want to take it past into a wrong kind of sacrifice. Now, yes, it's a sacrifice of the heart, and to one degree or another, any offering you bring is a sacrifice, because it was yours. And if you give it to God, you've sacrificed it to Him. If they brought a bull or a goat or a dove or whatever they brought, it may not have been a big cost, but it was still theirs, and therefore it was a sacrifice given out of love for God. So when he tells us to present our bodies a living sacrifice, he's telling us to give all. And a physical offering is only a symbol of the all that we are to give to God. It is a physical manifestation of a state of heart, if you will. So that has to be assessed in prayer before God, if done rightly, and then that offering given based on how you've been blessed and given in thanks to God for what He is to you. That's right here in verse 36. Uh, and then in 37 he reiterates it. And then in verse 38 he says, Beside the Sabbaths of the Eternal and besides your gifts... And beside all your vows and beside all your free will offerings which you give to the eternal, also in the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep a feast unto the eternal seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. So he calls it seven days, and then he adds an eighth in that verse. It's added on 
So it is a 7,000-year plan with an added-on period of time for the sake of some. And then he gives us some instruction in verse 40. You shall take on you the first day the boughs of goodly trees, branches of palms and the boughs of thick trees and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Eternal your God seven days and keep it a feast to the Eternal seven days in the year. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. And then he explains about what the limbs are for. You shall dwell in booths seven days. People have even called it the Feast of Booths as opposed to the Feast of Tabernacles. Tabernacle is a dwelling place. A booth is a dwelling place. All that are in Israelites born shall dwell in booths. Why? That's strange. That your generation may know that I made the children of Israel to dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Mitzrayim. I am the Eternal, your God. Now, they dwelt in tents, if you go back and read this. Uh, each man went in and out of his tent. It's many places there through the 40 years. of. So, when it says booths or succoths, it means, in the Hebrew, it means temporary dwelling. A tent is temporary. Uh, a hut made out of tree limbs is temporary. So he wanted them to understand that their sojourn of 40 years was a temporary thing and they would have a permanent place later. Now that's all ancient history though, is it not? Now in the New Testament, we're also directed, uh, not quite as clearly, but still directed to do the same thing. Why? Well, we learn from other scriptures that we're ambassadors for God on this earth of his kingdom. That our his kingdom is not of this world, otherwise we would fight. We would be in politics. But I vote for Christ. He's the only proper ruler to be on this earth is Christ. So I ain't going to vote for anybody else. A Trump or a Biden or a Hillary or a, ooh, the list, ooh, it just gets bad, worse and worse. Further you go. Pelosi, oh, just, just names come to mind. Terrible people to rule the nation or the world. No, our vote is for Christ Jesus Emmanuel and the Father to come down and rule the earth. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles is about. So we dwell in temporary dwellings to remind us that we are ambassadors for a future kingdom, and this kingdom today is not our kingdom. And it's not God's kingdom. It is Satan's kingdom. He is the prince of the power of the air and the present ruler of this earth. It's not his kingdom. And that's why there's murder and Cheating and lying and stealing and adultery and wars and uh, everything you can name that hurts people. So, you and I exchange homes or I'm staying for this feast out here in a cargo trailer. It's fine. It's temporary. But, hey, I was warm and I had no problem with that. Some of you switch houses so that you're in a temporary place whether it be a tent or drywall, isn't really the issue. 
the issue is, is it temporary for me to remind me that we're here for a temporary period of time and then we'll go into the eternal kingdom of God that is absolutely permanent. I go, but I will prepare a place for you and I will return and receive you to me and there you're going to be forevermore. So, the Feast of Tabernacles in the eighth day represent the culmination, well, the fall feast altogether, trumpets, atonement, and the feast, represent the culmination of the mystery of God and people becoming spirit beings in the kingdom of God and rulers on the earth, as Revelation 5.10 tells us we're to be, as kings and priests on the earth. And all the kingdoms of this world will be put down. So, here we are living temporarily for eight days to remind us that our generations may know that it's only temporary and something permanent is coming. Now, I really wanted to begin in Zechariah 14, but I thought I should go there to Leviticus 23 to set the stage for where we are today. Let's go to Zechariah 14 now. Behold, the day of the Lord comes. You think Zechariah is an end-time book? <laughs> There's a pretty good statement here at the last chapter to show you where we are. The day of the Lord, that comes right at the end. That's when he begins to intervene in the affairs of men, and he unleashes his wrath upon man for our sins. It comes, and your spoil shall be divided in the midst of you. So, he opens this showing that everything that is on earth, because Christ is going to bring everyone into subjection, and every knee will bow or else. So everything that has value on this earth, he is going to divide out where he wants it. It will be divided out in the midst of him in the midst of us, midst of you. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. Whole world. How many nations are there? Approaching 150, something like that. All nations will come to battle. And the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. A pretty terrible proclamation made there. The day of the Lord is not altogether a pleasant thing. At the end of that day come some pleasant things. But it is going to be a time when mankind is going to be decimated, and all the spoils of the earth are going to be divided according to Christ. Then shall the Eternal go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. So the whole earth is going to be arrayed against him. Well, where do we come to? Two witnesses preach for three and a half years. And then they kill them in the streets of Jerusalem. And they think that they've won the victory over Man and God, or the church and God. 
And then wrath comes down upon them. Because all the nations will be worshiping the beast at that time. All people that have survived except those who didn't take the mark of the beast, and they will be in Zion. That's the only bunch of people. They won't be out there on their own somewhere in ones and twos and threes and tens and hundreds worshiping God. They will either come to the place that He has designated with those whom He has designated, or they will die. That's the bottom line. And every nation on earth will then be watching those two die, and then they will see them rise up off the street three and a half days later, and they will see people from here and there rising to meet Christ in the air. And He will not have been done with them, because they have all arrayed themselves against His church and against His plan. So his issue is with every nation. And that's what Zechariah 14 is pointing out. He'll fight against all those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem, on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midserah toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley, and half the mountain shall remove to the north and half to the south. So there will be a deep valley running east and west, right through the Wasatch Range and east and over into Nevada from Jerusalem. And the place that is this Mount of Olives is due east of the original site of Jerusalem today, within 80 miles of here. And that's where it's going to cleave in two. Be quite a, quite a day. And you shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azel. Yea, you shall flee like as you fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. So people will be in Jerusalem. That's where they will have gathered and killed the two witnesses. Okay? And when they're resurrected and rise to meet Christ, and he comes down on the Mount of Olives, Jerusalem won't divide it in half, but the Mount of Olives will be, which is a mile and three quarters east of the original site of Jerusalem. It isn't like that in the Middle East. It's only like a hundred yards to the Mount of Olives from that city wall. But here, from the original place to which I believe is the Mount of Olives, is a mile and three quarters. I've measured it on Google Earth. That's where it is. And that's what the Bible says. 440 furlongs, I think, is the term it uses, and you reduce that to miles. <coughs> but that mountain is going to split in two. And there'll be a valley running east and west. And all nations... We'll see and witness this because they will have had their eyes trained with worldwide TV and whatever else they have by then to watch this event in Jerusalem, the final battle between the two and the world and Satan. So all their eyes will be riveted right there and they'll be sending gifts to each other. We won, we won, we won. 
Just like two political parties real soon now are going to be saying, both of them, we won, we won, we won. And then we're likely to have a civil war over the issue. These are building toward what I'm telling you about when Christ returns. And he will divide it, and they better flee. <laughs> if they're in Jerusalem, they better get out of there, because Christ is going to punish, and the nations of the world are going to be put down, just as it says here. And the Lord thy God shall come, into verse 5, and all the saints with thee. The 144,000 will be with him. They'll rise to meet him in the air. And when he comes back down, this is another trip. This is a different trip. This isn't immediately. When he returns and the saints rise to meet him, pictured by the Feast of Trumpets, they then go to the Father's throne for the marriage on Day of Atonement and stay there for a year where he cheers up his bride and lines her out in her job. Then when he comes and lands in Mount Zion, the saints will be with him. Different trip. He goes back and forth several times. First Thessalonians 4.17, we quoted just the other day. We will ever be with him. Once we rise to meet him in the air, we will ever be with him. And he'll come with ten thousands of his saints, as Jude 14 says. Not millions. Not all these millions that were supposed to be raptured. But tens of thousands, which is the 144,000. He will return with them. And they will be with him when he sets his feet on Mount, the Mount of Olives. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark. It'll be like two o'clock in the morning in Alaska in the summer. Where you, you can see, but you can't really see. Murky. But it shall be one day which shall be known to the eternal, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at evening time it shall be light. It shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half toward the hinder sea in summer, and in winter shall it be. Now that is a prophecy of an additional prophecy given in Revelation 21 where it says the Father and Son will come with the Holy Jerusalem and the waters will go out to heal the nations. Same thing being spoken of here. When he comes and sets foot here with the saints with him, he will be coming with his bride and the Father, and the Father and the Son will be the temple of the new Jerusalem. And waters will go out then to water and to heal the nations. He explains it more thoroughly uh, in chapter 21. But from Jerusalem, waters will go toward the former sea and toward the hinder sea. What does that mean? Well, it means that there were bodies of water on both sides of Jerusalem. So, 
when this happens, the water will go both directions. They could fish just outside of Jerusalem back in those days. And they could bring fresh fish up to the markets in Jerusalem and sell them. And they were doing it on the Sabbath day. And Nehemiah said, I'll jerk your beards off if you keep doing that. They weren't bringing them from Sea of Galilee 40 miles away or whatever it is. I don't remember. By mule or horseback, that would have spoiled fish. They didn't have gigantic coolers or refrigerated trucks. You packed your fish and whatever you had and you hauled it up the hill to Jerusalem. So there was a sea on both sides, body of water on both sides, fresh water. There is up here, but there's not over there in the Middle East. I've been there. They're just rocky hills all the way around and there's no former and hinder sea. That can't be the spot the Bible's talking about. Different spot altogether. The geography just doesn't match. Here it does, even the direct, even the distance to the Mount of Olives. But those waters will go out to both sides. And the Eternal shall be king over all the earth. And that day shall there be one Lord and His name one. Not a lot of rulers, just one Lord over all the earth. King of kings and Lord of lords is what he will be. All the land shall be turned as a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem, and it shall be lifted up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananiel unto the king's winepresses. And men shall dwell in it and there shall be no more utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. Safely, peacefully inhabited. No fear of war, total security. No more destruction. And this shall be the plague wherewith the Eternal will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Now remember the first chapter. All nations will be arrayed against God's two ministers and ultimately Him. And all these will suffer a plague that fought against the true Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand on their feet, and their eyes shall consume away in their holes, and their tongues shall consume away in their mouth. They'll be standing there with rebellion and hate and anger in their hearts and minds, and they will just melt and die. And it shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from whom the Eternal uh, shall be among them, and they shall lay hold of every one on the hand of his neighbor, and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. And Judah also shall fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the heathen round about shall be gathered together, gold, silver, apparel, and great abundance. Now we're told in Isaiah 44 and 45 that God is going to open the earth and his treasures and gold and everything will be revealed. And it will be used in part, I'm sure, to build and to decorate 
the latter temple, Ezekiel. And then the beast and the false prophet are going to come in and defile it and take over. And all that gold and all that stuff will be in their hands. God's people are going to flee when they see the armies gathering about Jerusalem, per Matthew 24, and they won't even go into the house to get anything. When they hear and see the armies coming, they just go. Now, don't wait a moment. Don't wait for the dog. Pick up the kid or tell the kid, run. Because woe be to those that give suck or have little children in that day. Because that is going to be a day of absolute sheer panic. Every man for himself. When you see or hear the warning and know that this is happening, you don't go back into your house to get anything. You just run for it. And you need to be old enough to run for it. Day of total panic. Well, how much are you going to take with you then? That's where I was leading. Nothing. If you're in the field, he says, go. If you want something out of the house, don't go in there and get it. Just go. Because an army is coming after you. God says he'll swallow it up. But you do need to be ahead of it. Because if you're behind it, you might get swallowed up with it. With an earthquake. So it is imperative that we flee with great haste at that particular flight. Now the flight to come here, ahead of the Assyrian, is a little slower. Isaiah 52. Doesn't have to be accomplished in that kind of haste, but still get the job done. Still get the job done. But not that kind of haste. So there's no gold, no silver, no spoiling of the Egyptians. Just go with your life in your shoes if you got them on. Now, I think we're going to know pretty close to when that day is because the armies are going to be gathering about. They're going to be closing in on Jerusalem. And when you see them actually appear, then is when you go. And you take nothing. So, even though God gives the gold and the silver and the temple ornaments to his people to put in the temple, it's going to be defiled and the people will have to run. They'll go to Zion with nothing but what's on their back. And the beast will take over all the riches of the earth, including the treasures of Almighty God. Including those. Had you thought of that? They'll have it all. We'll run from it. They'll have it all. But it says here, we'll get it back. <laughs> the heathen roundabout shall be gathered together. Their gold, the silver, their apparel in great abundance. He said at the very beginning of this chapter that the spoil would be divided by Christ, not by the beast. And so shall be the plague of the horse, of the mule, of the camel, and of the ass, 
And of all the beasts that shall be in these uh, tents as this plague. <coughs> Pretty horrible time, the day of the Lord. But it gets better, verse 16. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, remember, they all come, and he will defeat them all. And their eyes will melt and their tongues will melt. And everybody that's left will come up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So the Feast of Tabernacles isn't done away with. It's going to be kept throughout the millennium. And if it was kept in ancient history, and the apostles in Christ kept it, he walked on in the temple on the last great day of the feast, remember? And it's going to be done in the millennium. Then shouldn't people be doing it today? Yeah, I think so. And everybody will do it. But notice why they keep it. It's not perfunctory. It's not ho-hum. It's not Laodicean. It's with their heart. They'll go up to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. So the purpose of the feast is to worship the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, how is God to be worshipped? Does He want us to worship Him in a lukewarm fashion? I think we all know better than that by now, don't we? Wasn't His church decimated, torn apart, vomited out for being lukewarm and not doing it with all our heart? Yeah. So, he expects to be worshipped with feeling, with emotion, with love, in our hearts and minds. That's the way God wants to be worshipped. We're the same way. Don't we want our love, our mate, to be a true love? Don't we want them to love us with all their heart, with all their mind, body and soul? Shouldn't we have that kind of a feeling toward a life mate? Yeah. And if we don't have it that way, we need to get it that way. We need to work on it so that it becomes that. Because it's a type of Christ and his bride and what shall be. So when we keep the Feast of Tabernacles, we need to be coming here to worship the Lord, the King of hosts, with our hearts. It came to the point we were coming to eat and to drink and go to the beach and pretty much forget God. Every day of these eight that we are establishing today, you need to take time to go worship the King, the Lord of hosts. That's what you're here for. We're not here for potlucks. We're not here for entertainment. We're not here for food and drink. Now, those go into it because it is a festival. It is a time to make merry and joyful before the King, the Lord of hosts in heaven. And part of the way we do that is through enjoying food and drink. So he tells us, no restrictions at the feast. Enjoy whatever your soul desires because he wants us to be here 
and enjoy it. Don't eat something that you don't like while you're here. You may have to eat stuff you don't care for as much in day-to-day life. But he says, eat what you want. I don't want... What? Well, let's start with what I do want. Because that's what he tells me to do. I want some steak. I want some alcohol. Things I don't haven't been having lately much of. I don't want to gain 10 pounds, but at the same time, I want to enjoy whatever it is my heart desires. With temperance, certainly. He doesn't want us to all be drunk here. He says you can have strong drink, but don't be drunk. There's always that behind it. But enjoy it. Enjoy what he's given, because you're here to worship him. Enjoy. (coughs) And when the millennium comes... There will be peace and security and no war and safety and everything will be wonderful and everybody will have everything that they need. So he wants this little time to picture that. To have everything we want. And that's why he has a saved second tithe so that we will be sure and have enough to get there, to have enough to stay there, to have enough to eat anything and drink anything we want. Maybe not as much as we want, but anything we want. That is if it's clean. and I mean, all those things are behind that. All the things that are good for us that we can enjoy. God wants us to enjoy during this feast. But the main point is that all of those things physically are being done to show our gratitude and honor and worship to the king who will come and rule the earth and bring everybody what we have a small portion of in the Feast of Tabernacles. So you're really here to worship him in food and drink and song and to worship him in meditation and prayer and to go to him daily and give him thanksgiving and honor and glory and hallelujah and praise in his name. So that's what he says they'll do. They'll come to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. And if they don't come, there'll be no rain, verse 17. And if the family of Mitzrayim, representing the sinful world, go not up and come not, that have no rain, there shall be the plague. So it gets worse. If you don't come keep the Feast of Tabernacles, you don't get any rain. And if you still don't come, you'll have a plague, wherewith the Eternal will smite the heathen that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast-keeping is mandatory. (laughs) Today, tomorrow, and forever. This This shall be their punishment that don't come. And how will it be then? Verse 20. In that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness to the eternal. People put bells on their horses. They put bells on cows, even sheep sometimes, so they know where they are and what they're doing. And they can find them. Well, God wants to be able to find His people, and He wants to know where they are and what they're doing. And the music that we make, 
will be holiness to the eternal. The sounds we make will be holiness to the eternal. What's the cacophony of noise that God hears day to day from this earth right now? Oh, my. Filthy language, filthy conduct, filthy everything God hears from seven and a half billion people. Nelson mentioned a while ago something from the 1900s. And he wondered what century he's in, as he said. I don't know whether he noticed it, but in his last sermon he mentioned how God will take care of four and a half billion people. I thought, which century are you in? There's seven and a half billion now. But we all have those things. I get, I get them myself more and more frequently where I, I go back too far in time or don't remember. But every voice will be holiness to the eternal. And the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. What, what do you mean pots? Every cooking pot. Every family will be celebrating holiness to the eternal. So the food we eat during these eight days is to be holiness to the eternal. To be in thanksgiving. Thank you, God, for what you've given us that we can enjoy. This is a time not to fast. It is a time to rejoice in a feast of joy before God. Because that's the way it's going to be. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them. They'll all be able to participate. Isaiah 55 says, come and have wine and milk without money. Everybody can come and everybody will have. We're here to share our drink. We're here to share our food. Not just to have what we want. Didn't Paul get them on, on them about that in 1 Corinthians? Don't come to the Passover here to eat and to drink and to feed yourself. You're here to share. In fact, the business, he says, don't even come here to eat. Eat at home. Come here to worship God. But the Feast of Tabernacles, we're supposed to come and have everything we want and share with each other as the children of God in happiness and joy and giving and loving and serving and sacrificing. Yes, to some degree it's a sacrifice to go find food, to buy the food, to prepare the food, to bring the food. It's a sacrifice. Maybe not a great big one. You're not giving your whole life in that sense. But it is a sacrifice, and God appreciates it. And it should all be done in a spirit of giving and loving and sharing in holiness to the eternal. That's the way it's going to be in the millennium. And that's what we're projecting. That's what we're here to symbolize and to be a type of. So, they'll come and take of them, and seethe therein, they cook together, and in that day there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. You will either be a spiritual Israelite or you won't be. Because if you rebel, rebel against God, your tongue and your eyes are going to melt out. Because God will not have people who will not serve Him. 
And if there's some remain who rebel and won't come to keep the feast, they'll get no rain. And if they still are adamant and rebellious, the plague will come. And what does the plague do? It kills you. So there won't be any more of those. They'll all be gone. And every pot will be holiness to the eternal. You and I are so privileged, brethren. Our hearts should be absolutely full of thanksgiving to God that we can come in this day and age so very, very few and keep the Feast of Tabernacles and worship the King, the Lord of hosts. Do it with feeling. Do it with emotion. Do it with thanksgiving and gratitude to the God who has revealed His plan and His purpose to us and has allowed us, called us, in fact, to come here and worship Him, the King, the Lord of hosts.